Hey everyone, how you doing? Welcome to High Performance Pathways. I'm your host, Court Whitman. I hope your day is going phenomenal. I mean, as I, as I kind of check in with you here today and I think about what's been going on just in my little world here in North Carolina, it is beautiful out. 71 degrees yesterday, about 60 today. All of the rain that has been persistent in my part of the world has moved on and that just gets me incredibly excited. Uh, and I don't need a whole lot of excitement because I'm here with you today on the show. Um, let's talk real quick before we get rolling about this incredible sponsor that I want to highlight for you as a listener, and it is Big Sky Bravery. Big Sky Bravery provides high adrenaline recreational programming to our active duty special operations forces, and that's across every single service from United States Coast Guard to United States Air Force and everywhere in between. Because the founder of this incredible company is a guy I know, Josh McCain. He realized that it's tough work doing the work that our military veterans do. And he's designed week-long, in some cases, longer than a week treks out there in Montana. And people walk away from those experiences saying, man, this improved my psychological and emotional well-being. And then they return back to the fight for you for me and for America recharged. So, hey, if that fires you up, consider donating to that sponsor, Big Sky Bravery, and you can check them out at bigskybravery.org. It's just a small way that you could say, hey, Cord, I appreciate this podcast and your content. Now, as we continue together, let's also frame a little bit about what you can expect as a listener with this time that we have here together today. What is High Performance Pathways? And folks, here's what I intend to do. This show, High Performance Pathways, is absolutely purpose-built. And what it is, it's a, it's a, a specially selected collection of someone's experience. And I'm, we're gonna, I'm going to explore with this person and discuss with this person how it is that they understand, have discovered, and chased high performance in their life. And then this content is collected in this interview and shared with you. Why? Simple. Because I believe that everyone has a different and unique path for high performance in their life. And hearing about the other paths that people have journeyed along, it's informative and it is inspiring. So here's the deal, y'all. My intent as your host includes five things that I want to do for you in this show. Number one, I wanna connect. I wanna connect you to someone else so you can reach out to my guest and build out a relationship with them. Number two, I'm going to question because it's in the questioning that we can seek to understand. Number three, I'm going to share. What do I mean by share? I'm going to share my perspective that resonates with me in response to the questions that my guest feels for me. And I hope that that sharing out will help raise a new perspective in you. Number four, I'm absolutely going to teach to help develop your confidence. And number five, I want to inspire you. My guest wants to inspire you because that's why they're coming on the daggone show. So, that's what we're trying to do here with this incredible content. One additional note that I've got to cover, this podcast is raw, y'all. No super sweet editing. We're not cutting stuff out. There's no great music interludes. There's just great conversation. So we record live and we deliver it to you exactly as it was recorded. Now let's get to the reason why you're here today. And that's because of my guest. My guest today features Catherine Blackwell a talented therapist and the founder of Blackwell Mental Performance. 
little bit more about Catherine before we jump into this conversation together. Catherine's a proud and incredibly proud, in my opinion, because she talks so much about it and she spent a lot of time there of her roots in SoCal, Southern California. And when we first met, I still, it's still etched in my brain vividly. We had this great Zoom call and we were kind of learning about each other. And she had this great kind of photo collage of the waves and the beach in the background. Um, and I just love seeing that. So again, in my mind, and Catherine didn't tell me this, my guess is she's running towards water, loves water. It's just part of how she is. Um, she was born in Walnut Creek, California, and she went on to attend the University of Redlands, where she earns a Bachelor of Arts in Psychology, and later went on and earned a Master of Arts in Clinical Psychology with an emphasis in marriage and family therapy from Pepperdine University. A little bit more about this incredible woman. Her professional certifications include a graduate certificate program of sports psychology at John F. Kennedy University. And funny note here, Catherine, and for my listeners, I probably did seven to 10 networking engagements with graduates and faculty and adjunct faculty from JFK University because I was considering that same program. In the end, I decided not to jump into it, but that's part of Catherine's background here, sports psychology. Um, she's a licensed marriage and family therapist in both California and North Carolina, duly accredited certified alcohol and drug counselor and international certified alcohol and drug counselor. As a professional therapist, Catherine has served in a number of companies and in challenging positions throughout kind of that professional adult experience. And I just want to share a few of them with you here today because I think it matters to hear the context and how she spent her time serving folks in her profession. Number one, she was a therapist at Polymer Family Counseling Services in Fallbrook, California. Number two, she was a program therapist at Vista Hill Juvenile Court Clinic in Kearney Mesa, California. Number three, she was a therapist at Fortiris Healthcare in Marietta, California. Fourth critical kind of moment here, she served as an embedded behavioral health prevention specialist at Combat Logistics Regiment to aboard Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, and as a family and military life counselor for Magellan Health and MHN Government Services in Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. Each of these unique and varied experiences have served as a catalyst for Catherine to step out on her own as that business owner of Black Women of Performance, where her mission statement includes, I wanna share this with y'all as a wrap up kind of her background, and I quote, helping high performers overcome fear, anxiety, and injury so they can crush their goals, period, end quote. And folks, if you know a damn thing about me and you've been on this show for a while, you know that gets me excited, right? And so, hey, you are among good people, my people here on the show with Catherine. A couple of things about Catherine. Um, she's, a, she's an incredible spouse and mother of two. She's married to a Marine Zach Blackwell. Hey, Zach, shout out to you, buddy. And they have two great kids, Grayson, who's seven, and Bennett, who is five. So, Catherine, hey, thank you so much for being here with us together today. I'm very excited to kind of feature your work on this show and get some perspectives from you on, on what that really means to serve as a therapist and the capacity that you have to just kind of get some, some feedback from you on what it's like to be a business owner and even because I have a large military following, you know, 
a little bit about what it's like being married to Marine for as long as you have been. So thanks for being with us together today. Hey, Court, thank you so much for having me. Um, I mean, it's an absolute pleasure to be able to take this time and, and chat with you. Awesome, I'll tell you what, girl, there's no one else we'd rather be with today on the show than you. You were absolutely specially selected, so thanks for being here. Um, I think it's really important for me, and I think the listeners appreciate, as much as we just covered all of professional Catherine, right? <laughs> How can we settle into like, who is this human, right? Because we all have, you know, different experiences in life. I talked a little bit about Southern California and, and where you're from. I know it's important to you, but if you would, can we talk just a little bit about that, those, some of those earlier developmental experiences that we all have as kids? And so in this inquiry, you know, could you just share with us some insight to what it was like for you growing up, right? I mean, dual parent home, brothers and sisters, single parent, grandparents. I mean, you know, kind of how were you raised potentially talk about that your family a little bit. And then I always am curious about sport. You know, did sport play a role in your life at an early age? And if so, would you share with us kind of what you enjoyed? And if it wasn't sport, you know, what was it that got you excited or how did you spend your time as a kid growing up outside of the classroom? So any thoughts about life younger you yeah so it's funny when you when you ask this I'm like oh I'm a therapist like let's go back to childhood that's easy you know that's I feel like that's <laughs> kind of the joke right um but so when I was thinking about this so I was born in northern California Walnut Creek um my parents divorced when I was really young I don't know probably around I think I was around like two or something and so we ended up moving in with my grandma and then my grandma shortly after moved to Temecula, which is just outside of San Diego County. And so my mom's side is Italian. And my dad, I only knew my dad on my dad's side. Um, he was English from, you know, from England. Um, and so when we moved there with my grandma, it was funny because it's like eventually all the rest of my family kind of trickled to Temecula. So they all pretty much live there now. Um, so growing up there was pretty cool. Uh, we moved there before there was anything there. Like if you were to go see what Temecula looks like now, it's completely different. I mean, when we moved there, there were farms and dirt roads. And I remember when they put the target in and that was like a huge deal. Um, it, <laughs> no was, it, was a, it was a small little town uh, and it's grown into this beautiful place with all these amazing wineries. I really, I really do love uh, Southern California. Now, um, so when I was thinking about it and I'm like, okay, growing up there, all my family eventually comes. Um, my mom, I think she got remarried when I was in second grade, but my mom was an interesting woman. I was kind of thinking about it and kind of like thinking about her characteristics. I don't know if I would obviously call her a high performer, but then I'm thinking about all the things she had me do. And I'm like, I learned these amazing things from her. So I think she was kind of where I get some of my high performance habits from. Uh, she got me into sports. I want to say it was around fourth grade, got me into softball. Mm. She didn't care what I did as long as I did something. And I think my little sister started playing softball first and I was like, okay, I'll give it a shot. Uh, and that was it for me. I mean, I absolutely fell in love with it. I played catcher in third base until high school. And then in high school, I just, I was predominantly third base. 
Um, where I think this is absolutely fascinating is I never tried out senior year. I suffered with performance anxiety. Wow. Uh, ironic, right? Because now this is what I do. Yeah. Uh, I suffered with performance anxiety. And so I had, I had a good arm. I had a really good arm. And if I had time to think, I would overthrow it to first base. And so when it came time to, you know, senior year came around, uh, my performance anxiety had gotten so bad, I didn't even allow myself to try out. And I think looking back now, I think some of that was to protect my ego. Mm -hmm. I don't think I could have handled it if I, you know, if I had been benched or, or, you know, was like second string, I don't think I could have handled that um, at the time. So I just never tried out. Now, the other interesting thing is what I'm learning about head injuries is I wonder if that has anything to do with it. So I've only kind of remembered this in the past year or so, but somewhere around junior or beginning of senior year, I had been helping my parents. They had bought property in Deleuze, which is the hills, you know, behind kind of in front of Temecula. Um, and they were going to build their forever home there. Um, mm -hmm. And so my mom never wanted me to have a job. She wanted me to focus on school and sports, right? Because not only were sports something I had to do, but it was like, you're, you're going to go to college. It wasn't a choice. Um, but she did it in a way that I never, you know, it wasn't, it, it was, I was okay with it. It was like, okay, you know, let's go. What, a great, what a great daughter. I'm yeah. thinking about my 10 year old son right now who wants to fight me with everything. Like I just, man, good, good gracious, Bryce. Can you just once they say, okay, dad, never happens in our family. What a great girl. Go yeah. ahead continue. <laughs> Um, and so I would work on the property to get money, you know, allowance and, um, gosh, this is back when bell bottoms were kind of in style. I think they're coming back again, but they were in style. And so I was working on the property in bell bottoms, which is super appropriate. Right. And <laughs> I was driving a Kawasaki mule and helping them put in the driveway and I flipped it and I took a roll cage to the face Ooh. and, at the time, I, you know, didn't think anything of it. I didn't lose consciousness. I had a bloody, you know, bloody nose, of course, you know, banged up because I think I got thrown into a tree to top it off. Um, and I think this, you know, this happened on a weekend. So I may have gone to the doctor during the week and they said, oh, you know, you probably broke your nose and nothing we can do about it. And that was that, right? Nothing else happened. This is mm -hmm. 20 plus 20 years ago. Um and so looking back now and, and what I know about head injuries, I'm wondering if that added to the anxiety problem. Um, so that's kind of something I reflect on now. Not, not that there's much I can do about it, but I, it's kind of led me down to being really curious about head injuries and injury, right? And how they play a role. Sure. So I had two sisters. I had an older sister and a younger sister. My older sister rode horses. My younger sister did softball for like a year. And then I think she ended up going into dance. Um, and I think it was just kind of like, you know, sports in college. That was it. That's kind of what my mom pushed me to. I was okay with it. She, you know, she did it in a way that didn't make me feel like I wanted to quit. I think there were some things I even tried in the beginning that she did let me quit and I'm, and I'm grateful for it. So it mm. was like, she had this balance of when to let me quit and when not to let me quit. Um, so that's, yeah, that's the, the gist of it. 
Wonderful. Thanks for sharing it. I think it's, it's, it's really informative for me just listening to you. And, and let me just share with you what I think I'm hearing. Um, moved around a little bit, grew up with family, had to kind of experience at a young age, some loss with a divorce of parents. And then I'm hearing a very strong influence in your life of mother. Um, and with your permission, you mind sharing your mom's name in this moment so we can bring her to life? Oh yeah, it's Catherine also, Catherine Weems. She goes by Kate. Oh my goodness, that's <laughs> incredible. I have met very few women that kind of trend more towards like the male name lineage. Yeah, so, I'm the third. I, that's incredible, I love it. I am the seventh generation uh, Courtney male in my family. Wow. Um, middle names changed up throughout the years. My son is Courtney Bryce. We call him Bryce in the home. And that gives me another little bit of insight to how important, in my opinion, like people don't just do that haphazardly. You know, yeah. like, you know there's a lot of intention about the name behind the kids, I think. And clearly mm -hmm. there was some here too. So, so mom was a big influence. How about those sisters? Are you close to them? Do you mind sharing <laughs> their names? Yeah. So my older sister, her name is Sarah Wilson. And my little sister, Allie Brenner. All right, cool. And, and, and so obviously they're important and impactful with your life. It seems that I think what you're telling me is you're the middle child. Um, I am. Mm -hmm. My brother Clint is a middle child. Um, I'm the oldest of five. And man, if he was on here right now, he'd be giving it to me about how and what it's like <laughs> to be a middle child. Don't know that you shared any of those thoughts, but then sport, right? And then it's funny because I'm hearing Angela Duckworth in my mind. Oh, and yeah. And folks, if you don't know Angela's work, she wrote this incredible book called Grit. And if you haven't heard of it, I don't know where you've been, especially with my listening base um, and what they do. But what I'm hearing is, is, is Kate, mom Kate here, kind of was a little like Angela-like in mm -hmm. her guidance as she was a mom. And that was, hey, you know what? One tough thing. One tough thing's Angela's words. We all do one tough thing in this family. Um, it's the same thing that I preach in my family. I just don't know that I'm as good as your mom was in being loose with it. I'm like the tyrant with it. Like, <laughs> like no, it's got it. You, you're doing something, right? There is no Xbox is life after school in this family. You can do some of it, but I want you to do one tough thing and that doesn't count. Um, so thank you for the insight. Uh, and then I think there's a little bit of, although maybe not at the time, I think, you know, you open the door to this a little bit as a therapist, there's so much uh, of just curiosity that I think you naturally have because of the work that you do, even so much so to your own life that, hey, maybe that one reason I didn't push myself could have been because of just performance anxiety and ego, but maybe there was something deeper there. Um, so thank you so much for framing kind of younger you, because I think it helps us look towards adult you. Um, Let's build on this a little bit more. And I'll ask you specifically, were there anyone that you looked up to in your life? Um, you know, not everyone has a mentor, a role model, or someone that they're aspiring to be as a young kid. So I'm curious, was that part of your childhood or is that not? You know, I, it wasn't, it wasn't. Um, so how's that for an answer, right? It, so I don't have, I didn't have anyone that I was like thinking of as a role model or that I aspired to be, I didn't have like a mentor per se, 
But I really thought about this question for a while. And, you know, my parents, my mom and my dad, I don't think I had the awareness of it, but they, you know, they, they literally modeled for me the behaviors, right? Um, my mom, you know, I already mentioned a bunch of the things she did. Um, she was constantly pushing me to succeed. Uh, she was encouraging me. She motivated me. She was literally at every game I've ever played. I don't think she ever missed a game. She was like the team mom because she traveled with us. Um, and I mean, that's amazing. I know not everyone can say it, but my mom made sure she was there. Um, mm. And and I remember she she would take us on. She always calls them adventures and she'd crack up if she heard me say that she'd take us on these outings to explore and something, something like terrible would always happen. And, and then she would find the way to make it fun. Right. And, and the best memory I have of this is I think she was still single at the time. And she took me and my sisters for a car ride and we went down, we went exploring Temecula. We went down like a muddy dirt road and it was, it had been raining. Um, and I don't know, she had like a Honda. And so we go to, to go back and there was this hill. Well, she couldn't get up the hill. It was so muddy. She couldn't get the car up the hill. And, you know, us in the back were like kind of scared, not sure about what's going on. Um, and she just stayed lighthearted. And then there was these, these two kids, they come joyriding down this road and my mom flags them down and asks them to get us out. And they, you know, they drive us out. And it just, it just was something that stuck in my mind because even if we went and explored or we, we did something and something, you know, bad happened, she still made it fun. She still made us feel safe. Right. Mm. And so yeah. she, she really is someone that, you know, I didn't identify at the time as a mentor or as a role model, but she totally was. I love it, man. I mean, good gracious. Shout out to parents, shout out to the single parents, um, you know, that are out there, and giving themselves their permission to look at life holistically. And mm -hmm. these aren't your words, Catherine, but this is kind of what I'm hearing a little bit here that your mom was invested. Like, I mean, she, the word that, that, I'm, that I'm hearing is presence. She was physically present in your young mm -hmm. adult life and that mattered. And it was intentional and in like complimenting your sports journey, like to have the parent in the stand or the sideline or in the gym, it's powerful. Why? Yeah. Because so many people will say, I just wish my parent was there. You know, um, some people will challenge my statement and hey, I'm ready to hear it. And some people say, well, having my parent on the sideline, in the gym, in the stands, scared the shit out of me, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I didn't perform well in those moments. Well, then, you know, that's not the parent that I'm advocating you should be in this moment. It's tough to strike the balance between challenge and support as a parent. But yeah. I want you to feel encouraged right now if you are someone's parent or if you're an aspiring parent to be, um, it's hard to do. The other thing that I'm hearing from you is just these adventures and, and, and then one adventure that you shared. So bottom line, hey, kids, parents, take your kids on adventures like Catherine talked about, right? And they're not going to be perfect. And I think of, of camping as an adventure, right? Mm -hmm. You take the kids camping. I took my daughter on her first 11 mile hike. She's just turned 12. I did it uh, when she was 11, about four months ago in the summer before the sixth grade school year, because I knew 
I said, I don't, I didn't know. I thought I knew I have one sister and she's two years younger. And I looked back on her life in middle school as a girl and in high school, I looked back on my life and I was like, man, it sucks to be a girl. You know, it's kind of easy to be a dude. So I wanted to put my daughter through something uncomfortable before she experienced the uncomfort of trying to be a sixth grade girl. And, you know, what I'm getting at is that was an adventure and we don't, we didn't really know, was it going to rain on us? Well, it did. I didn't ask for it, but there's just, things just happen when you make time for adventures. And I also heard from you as you explained this great picture of your mom hopping out of the Honda, sliding down the side of the hill in the mud. She she was a confident woman. Uh, In my opinion, in that moment, right? She's like, hey, look, there's a problem. I'm going to solve it. Let me get out. Let me flag this person down and get it done. I don't know that everyone would do that. So and even if she wasn't confident, she never felt, she never made us feel like she was anything less than confident. Yeah, right. Fake it till you make it. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I say that half jokingly, right? It's a real, <laughs> it's, it's a real thing, right? It, it, I think what the point's trying to make there is, you know, if you can have confidence within yourself, even to at some point when you know what you're doing, you don't know really well how to get it done, but you're able to have a high self-regard people see that and people react to that. And that can be helpful in those sorts of moments. So, you know, uh, just hearing you talk right now. So this will probably come up more as we talk, but the one thing that I've learned as a military spouse, not one thing, um, but the one of the things that I kind of remind myself and is almost like a mantra to me is that like, I will figure it out. I will always figure it out. And I think like just talking about this, this, you know, conversation and and how my mom was, I think she was like that. I think that's where I got that from her, you know, that like, I mean, cause what's, what's my other option to not not figure it out? Like I'm going to figure it out. It's going to happen. Yeah. And I would just say, what a gift to give your daughter, which is this just appetite, this, character trait you know this approach to life that yep can't get off the side of this mountain in the mud girls but we're going to figure it out yeah awesome let's continue you got something else well i did want to i did want to mention my dad too so my dad i mean my parents were divorced so i didn't live with my dad i didn't see him as often but why i wanted to bring him up is he saw the real me before I even knew what that meant. And I remember him trying Mm. to cultivate that and really help me understand it. And he actually passed away in 2005, but it wasn't until this last year or so that I had the aha moment of, um, and excuse my language, but oh fuck, (laughs) this is is what he meant. This is what he saw. And really stepping into that person um, and so he, he was definitely integral. Amen. Amen. I'm, 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 uh, what I'm hearing from you is dad was kind of a visionary, probably mm-hmm. a real smart man. Um, inviting you to share his name. George Teague. George. Thank God for George and mm-hmm. know that you know, wherever you are, my man, you've had a lasting impact on Catherine here. And uh, 
I know she's thankful for that and I'm thankful for that. So I'm glad you had a chance to, to make sure that we've recognized and called out his influence. And so if you're someone's dad out there, someone's mom, you matter. And you might not know, and you might be frustrated and want to choke your kid out like I sometimes <laughs> want to do, right? But yep. just stay the course, trust the process, right? Sound like Bill Belichick right here in this moment, <laughs> right? Or any other coach that's out there coaching kids in sport, right? But whatever process you have as a parent, right? Trust it, stick with it. And maybe, you know, in their 30s and 40s, like me and Catherine here, they might uh, say, you know what? Dad, mom, <sighs> you were right. Thank you. And hey, for kids out there, right? If you're thinking and listening to this right now and kids being loosely defined, anyone in their 50s that has a parent that's still living, I challenge you to say thanks. It's just, just think about the impact your parents have had in your life and just say thanks why you still can, right? So much so that I'm going to say thanks to my parents right now because Catherine's inspired me to do it. You know, so Skip, Diane Whitman, you've been a blessing in my life and I'm grateful for you. All right, so let's continue here, Catherine, if we can, and let's mm -hmm. let's fast forward a bit to your career, right? Now we're talking adult. And at some point, young adult, adult, I don't know, you tell me, I'm experiencing some of this learning the first time, but you decided to develop a specialization in this world, in this field of therapy. And you're a therapist. Mm -hmm. And that kind of started when you decided to study psychology and then later clinical psychology with a focus on marriage and family. Mm -hmm. Why? So I actually knew I wanted to be a counselor in seventh grade. Uh, wow, that's incredible. <laughs> I love it. You say, you sound like my cousin. Like I'm thinking of my cousin right now. His name's Jason Hill, right? And he told me, hey, Court, I was reading the Wall Street Journal in third grade. He's from New Jersey. Maybe that just <laughs> happens up there in the north because I think everyone up north wants to work in finance. But fast forward 25 years, he just sold his company. It's a venture capitalist investment banking company for multiple millions of dollars. So, hey, wow. some people got it like that. I did not have <laughs> it like that. OK, so seventh grade, you wanted to, you knew you wanted to do this stuff. Continue, please. Yeah. I just love to listen to people. And that was, uh, that was just kind of like, I like to listen to people. I'm good at it. So this is, this is what's going to, this is where it's going to go. Um, and so of course my mom was always pushing me to college. Now she, I'll never forget. She kept like psychology, like, no, like, like, don't do it. Don't do it. She was trying <laughs> to get me to go into the field of computer sciences. <laughs> good gracious. And I laugh because I am the most technologically unsavvy person you will meet like I like I mean it probably would have really benefited me absolutely um, but it just not not my passion not at all and she just was like well you know that's where the money's gonna be and da 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 and you know there's not much you know what are you gonna do you know whatever she she kind of said her piece but she let me you know do what I needed to do and so the undergrad it was a no-brainer like uh I went to Redlands because it wasn't it was far away from home, but close enough. Um, so I'm very family oriented. And then it was a small school. Sure. And again, looking back, I wonder if it was that anxiety, like at the time, like it, it intimidated me too much to go to a large school. And so mm -hmm. when I went and did the campus tour, this one just was like, it just felt, you know, comfortable and like close knit. And, and it just, it kind of just fit me at the time. Yeah. 
Now, grad school was a completely different story. So um, in undergrad, I had an advisor who was like, you know, if you're not quite sure what you want to do with it, go for your marriage and family therapy license. She may have been a marriage and family therapist, but she was like that way, you know, you know, you want to do counseling, but that way, you, you know, you can work with individuals, you can work with couples, you can work with families, you can kind of figure it out. Um, and so that's who planted the seed for marriage and family therapy. And so um, I, let's see, it was time to, you know, I think like the applications were all due in December, right? And I had all these schools I was going to apply to. Well, my dad died December 8th, 2005. He died right when all of the applications were due and I didn't turn any in, not a single one. And I spent the month of December and some of January kind of getting his things together and, you know, breaking down his home and, and packing it all up and bringing it back to Temecula. Um, at the time, my mom couldn't help. I think she had ended up having surgery. Um, I think she ended up having a hysterectomy. Mm. My sister couldn't help me because a few days after my dad died, my nephew was born and my sister was diabetic and her kidneys started to shut down. So she was in the hospital. So it, I went up by myself and kind of packed it up. Um, mm -hmm. and then, so when I got back and I kind of, you know, the dust had settled a little bit, um, Pepperdine was the only one that was still accepting applications. And that was the place I applied and that was the place I got into. And that was the place I went. Love it. So what I'm hearing is a little bit of a court. I, I had an awareness of, of what I enjoyed. And I allowed kind of my passion, my excitement to lead me. And that was for, as you've said, I'm really good at listening to people and I enjoyed it. And then you kind of followed that at a young age. And then there was someone that had some influence in your life that someone being a teacher and advisor to say from a practical place, if you're not sure yet, family and marriage therapy is a great place to be. Good gracious. I'm thinking in my mind right now of two people, three people that made significant impacts in my life. That kind of even knew me better than I knew myself. Zach Maritas, owner at Teamworks, who was the first person that said you should not be selling software court. You should be a leadership coach. And oh, by the way, I want you to do that here for me in this company. Before Zach, it was Rob Lively. Rob Lively was a troop sergeant major and went on to be the command sergeant major of the Delta Force. And, and Rob encouraged me in a number of ways to do stuff. And then before that, it was my team sergeant in Afghanistan in 2005, Jerry Patton, who said, hey, Court, you ever heard about this place called the Delta Force? I think you ought to check it out, man. I think you'd be, do great there. So all those three people I just named had an impact on my life because they encouraged me to do something I didn't even see in myself. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what was on that level for you, Catherine, with the marriage and family therapy focus. But I guess what I'm saying here is that Allow yourself to listen to other people in your life when they say, I think you'd be good at something. And maybe that's a catalyst for you to run towards something that you might not have even seen. Mm -hmm. So thanks for sharing that with us. And then, of course, you know, the disruptive moment of, of losing dad. And what I heard from you when I heard the story was your mom in the back of your mind saying, hey, yep, nephew's coming. Mom's sick. Dad's passed. But I'm going to figure this out. Mm -hmm. And you did, you figured it out. So thank you for sharing that with us. Um, let's talk a little bit about, you know, the holistic P 
piece of life here for you, Catherine. You're married, Zach. You got two kids. Um, how long have you all been together, right? And, mm-hmm. and do you have any memories that you'd be interested in sharing for folks that are listening, you know, about what it's like to being married to a Marine? Yeah, so this year actually will make 10 years married. Mm. Um, Congrats. Thank you. That's exciting um, to be in those double digits. Uh, And actually, I just kind of wanted to give him a shout out too, because he is being promoted to gunnery sergeant on Monday and hits his 12-year mark this month. Mm. Congrats, Zach. That's a big deal, man, for those Marines. Um, Yeah, very proud of him. No doubt. So my, my good and bad memories are all, I think, intertwined with his deployments. So sure. he's had four deployments. He was supposed to be going on his fifth this summer, but um, won't be going. So the four deployments. So his first deployment, right? We're in California. It's kind of like life is, I don't know, was pretty much the same at that point. Um, I was doing my thing, had my job and, and he deployed to Afghanistan in 2012 with 11th Marines. Um, and I just kind of picked up, I waitressed through grad school and I just kind of started waitressing again and worked two jobs. And I was like, I'm just going to save so we can have an awesome honeymoon when he gets back. (laughs) And then, uh, so I ended up getting pregnant right before my 30th birthday, um, And I think like a month, a month before I was due. Okay, let me back this up. So he lat moved into Intel. He was, he was um, with artillery and he lat moved into Intel. Mm -hmm. And so the end of my pregnancy, he was in Virginia for the six months. And so, and I just remember him talking about Camp Lejeune and just like, no, we just like, we don't, you know, we don't want to end up there. I I hear terrible things about that place. (laughs) And I just remember, I think I was like four weeks out and I was on bed rest. I was like, I was on bed rest and he calls me up and he's like, hey, (laughs) guess what? (laughs) He's like, guess where we're going? And I'm like, where? And he's like, Camp Lejeune. And I was like, wait a minute. (laughs) He's like, it's going to be great. (laughs) Wasn't this the place that you were telling me was like terrible? (laughs) And so, yeah, so that brought us, that brought us here. And why that's all important and relevant is because between the first and second deployment, I mean, there was a good amount of time. Um, His second deployment was with the 26th Mew. And I had a four month old and a two and a half year old. So we go from first deployment, just us, second deployment, two kids, two little kids, right? And it was a shit show. You know, they say that whole like Murphy's Law of deployments. And and this was my experience of that for sure. And it was terrible. It was absolutely terrible. Um, My four-month-old, like I was working, that was when I was working at... um, CLR2 as the prevention specialist I was I was like trying to pump in the parking lot because I you know it was just it was like it was stressful and he left like I think October and Thanksgiving day I was FaceTiming my aunt and all of a sudden the two and a half year old starts projectile vomiting and I'd never seen that before like I'd seen spit up you know I've seen adult vomit but I've never seen a kid like projectile vomiting And I swear that was like, that was the start of it. And from there on, he ended up having both strains of the flu. 
And then after that, the little one got sick and he ended up getting like four back-to-back double ear infections. Mm. Then um, I decided to switch jobs in the middle of this because, you know, why not, right? At this point. And then... (laughs) You're going to figure it out. (laughs) And then I think I was like in my first week of the new job and I'm having trees trimmed. One of the trees disintegrates and clips off the back of our roof. Wow. And... I'm like, I don't even know what to do. So the week after that, we get the flu again. And I like call, I remember calling my mom and my mom, um, she used to work for TWA. She was a flight attendant. And so she flies free, thankfully with American Airlines. I remember calling her and be like, oh my God, mom, I need help. I need help. Like I didn't know anyone. I didn't really have a support system. And so I called her and she comes in And at that point, I think only one kid was sick. She flies in and then me and the other kid get sick. So she's trying to help one kid. I'm trying to help the other kid and myself. It was so bad. We had to like go to this, like the local store and buy her clothes because we were all so sick. We, we couldn't like she, my little ones were throwing up all over her. It was just such a nightmare. Mm. And then I think he had two more ear infections after that. And we finally get tubes. And so it was just like one of those things where I I can laugh about it now, but I remember feeling like, oh my God, when is this going to stop? Like, this is, you know, they say you're not supposed to get any more than you can handle. And like, I'm at my point. I can't, I can't take anymore. And so now my good memory is his third deployment and this, uh, his third deployment, he was with MARSOC and I was determined that it was not going to be like the second deployment. And so during this third deployment in 2017, I, I focused on myself. I focused on my kids. I focused on my health. That's when I discovered, um, I read, I actually, this is when I read uh, Grit by Angela Duckworth. And mm. um, I really discovered sports psychology. Uh, within three weeks of discovering sports psychology, I was enrolled in JFKU. <laughs> and... <laughs> The first day of school happened to be the day Zach came home. So it was, it was a whirlwind, but it was a whirlwind of good, of good things, of growth, of like really stepping into my own. I love it. Thank you for sharing a little bit about just, you know, your life and, and, you know, the challenges that spouses face when they make that decision to marry a, a Marine a soldier, an airman, a sailor, right? Um, Good gracious, my my brother, Clint, my middle brother, I mentioned him earlier. I don't know why he's on the mind right now, but he just had their first child, Hudson, Hudson Kai. Um, And they're both home, right? Clint's in a job where he could take off. Alicia's uh, in a a place where she can be present, right? And, you know, they're the team taking care of and building out the family now sometimes and sometimes maybe isn't even generous enough a lot of times you know when you make that decision to 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 marry someone in the military there's a lot of going alone there's a lot of i'll figure it out and you sure as heck did so thanks for sharing a couple of those memories i want to continue though around this line of of the military spouse just for another moment because you know, 
you talked a little bit about in 2017 and, and, and some reading and how that inspired school. And let me tell you, I mean, just deciding to go to JFK and get a master's in sports psychology, it's, it's you know, some people would just say, well, I'm going to watch a show on Netflix, you know? <laughs> um, but, you know, I mean, you're, you're doing big things, right? And, and now, you know, for, for a while, been owning and operating your own business. And so I'm just curious, for other women out there that are listening or men that are married to a woman who's serving and find themselves in the very similar situations that, that we've talked about here, you know, is there any advice you might be able to give to that spouse um, that maybe feels overwhelmed or maybe has a desire to have a career, um, but doesn't think they can do it because they're kind of feel alone because of the demands of the military, or maybe has a dream to, to, to start a business. Well, you've done all that. And you've been a spouse to a Marine with two kids. I, I'd be crazy not to just ask if there's any wisdom or, or advice you could just offer up about how to do that or how you did that. Yeah. Um, so the first one that came to mind when I was thinking of this is, is just find the other ambitious spouses and build your network. There's such a wealth of knowledge and talent and a lot of it is being underutilized and you can really build each other up, support each other, but you can learn if you, if you're thinking about doing something, but you don't know how to do it, you can find a lot of the information within that group because there's so many different people at so many different levels with so many different skills and they all want to help, you know, they all it's sometimes it can be almost like an instant bond because you're a military spouse. And so, you know, like they, they get it. And so um, really taking advantage of it. They also, um, I think it was actually during that 2017 deployment, they had some type of spouse, military spouse symposium on Camp Lejeune and I attended it. And it was like the military spouse of the year was talking and, um, General Amos's wife was there. She spoke. I think Ivanka Trump actually came to it as well. Um, I didn't see her speak, but it was it was just all about like empowering the military spouse, helping them understand resumes, and and it it was there. You know, it was there as a resource and to connect you with other people. I think when you walked in, you immediately they immediately set you up with a headshot. You could take free headshots. It was just a really cool thing, and they have these things that go on and just kind of building the awareness that they're out there and building that network is so Im important. Um, now, the second piece of advice that it didn't, didn't dawn on me um, originally, didn't dawn on me as fast as the other one, but do not lose yourself in this role. Um, recreate yourself if you have to. Be creative if you have to. This role can create this limiting mindset. And I've been there. I lost myself for about six years. I mean, when we, when we moved here, I couldn't find a job. Um, my first job here was bartending at Chewy's because I needed to work. And I've done that before. It's a skill I had. So I did it. Thankfully, I was only there for about two months um, before I got the job on base. But, you know, it, this this role, you get sent to all these places and maybe your license follows you. Maybe this, you know, the certifications follow you. Maybe they don't, maybe you don't know people or, or you're in an area where, you know, there's not a lot of job options. 
Um, and that's where you really have to get creative because it's so easy. And I, I did this, I got stuck in thinking I had to work these jobs because that was what was available. And it took me a while to realize like, no, I don't, I don't have to do that. And that became very empowering. And then having that network to support me kind of just propelled me forward. Mm. Beautiful. Uh, what an incredible reflection. Two things coming from Catherine for, for all military spouses to consider. Um, if you want to build a business, if you want to have a career, um, hey, network and, and lean into the military spouse community network specifically because there's a lot of women just like Catherine that are out there killing it. And hey, start with Catherine, right? I'm serving yeah, you up right definitely. here, girl. Serving you up, right? Yeah. Without even asking. Uh, call Catherine, ask her, get, get a more deeper conversation with her. And then the second thing that I heard from you is, hey, guard against kind of losing yourself uh, or limiting yourself and get creative because that's what you did. So thanks for sharing that. I think it's important. Let's talk about the work that you're doing right now. Um, and I'm just curious, where, where did that inspiration come from to found this company, your company, Blackwell Mental Performance. Mm -hmm. So that third deployment was really pivotal. Um, so during that third deployment, my oldest son, who was four at the time, he had his four-year doctor checkup. And I went in and I was filling out the questions, the developmental milestone questions. And I don't remember what the questions were. It was probably like, can he draw a circle? Can he stand on one foot? You know, whatever the <laughs> questions, whatever the questions were. But all of a sudden I realized, I don't know. I don't know if he can do these things. And it was this wave that hit me. And then the next thing that came to mind was, I bet you his preschool teacher knows these things. And that right there was a pivotal moment because that is what made me realize I need to reevaluate my core values and I need to make some changes. And so my core values at the time, I say at the time because they've evolved a little, my core values at the time were family, work ethic, and growth. And so the job I was doing um, at the time um, it was kind of a toxic environment and they were, you know, um, you know, the, the whole uh, uh, stigma of mental health on base. And I was not being utilized as a military family life counselor. Um, and it, it kind of dawned on me, like, I'm putting my kids in daycare. I don't know the answers to these questions. And these people could probably care less if I'm here. Mm -hmm. And then the work ethic piece, like if they weren't coming to see me, like I, you know, there was a lot of downtime for me right. and I'm not someone who can just sit on my butt and collect the paycheck. Like I need to be doing something. Sure. Um, and then the growth piece, I, you know, for me, it was, it didn't feel like a job that had growth opportunities. It did, but they weren't really what I wanted. And so now at the time it wasn't, I couldn't just quit. Um, so I had to get creative and I had to find ways to feed those core values. And so what I started to do was throwing myself into my work because I had to work, 
-hmm. So that way that fed the work ethic that fed the family core value, because if I'm going to be at work, it has to matter. It has to matter. It has to make putting them in daycare worth it. Um, so I started that and that's where I started educating myself, looking into, you know, different, putting on different, I think like, um, workshops or I don't know, whatever I was doing, I was trying to do something, um, that would benefit them, you know, um, not just find time to fill my time, but to, to actively do something that would be helpful to them. And I think that's where I started realizing that the concepts that spoke to me most and spoke to the people I was talking to were the sports psychology concepts. Um, and that's kind of why I ended up going back to school. Cause as soon as I started to discover those sports psychology concepts, it was like, oh my God, this is the missing piece. Like, you know, I had bounced around other jobs to get my hours towards licensure, but none of them ever felt like they were the right fit. You know, I worked mm. with kids, I worked with addicts and it, it kind of was like, like, this is good, but, but I don't, it's not right. It doesn't, it's like, I'm missing something. And at the time I was like, oh, I have to go back to school. I have to go back to school. Maybe I just don't know enough. Like if you're familiar with imposter syndrome, my imposter syndrome was kicking in. So I was like, dude, I just need to go back to school and learn more. And then maybe I'll be, you know, maybe this will, I'll figure it out. Yes. And so, um, that's kind of where that all came into. Um, and so I think Zach came home. I, th so the graduate study program I did, it was a, it was a certificate program. So I think the program was meant to be like 12 to 15 months long. Um, I think I did it in nine. Wow. I just kind of zoomed through it as quick as I could. Um, and that when that was up, I think that was in June of 2018. Well, in July of 2018, I learned that the company I worked for, um, that the, the MFLAC contract came to an end and the company I worked for did not get the contract for Camp Lejeune. So mm -hmm. my options were to apply for the other company or figure out something else. And this is where it was like, okay, well, this is something you've thought about doing. It's time to do it. And so when the contract ended in August, I just, I just went my own way. And so that's kind of how that happened. Love it. Some of it is, is inspired, um, you know, with this, with this kind of foothold, this foundation and, and your core values of just working incredibly hard and wanting to always be growing. Um, and then I think the other part of it too was quite practical, like probably just time. Mm -hmm. if, and if there's not a better time, it might not happen again. So a couple of the things I'd just love to hear from you. How do you explain like maybe the mission of Blackwell Mentor Performance? Like if you're talking to someone like, like you're not right now, like for the first time. <laughs> so for the listeners, right? What is the mission of Blackwell Mentor Performance and how specifically do you serve others and then, you know, and that's kind of like a high level. I'd love to hear from you. Just comment on that a little bit. And then let us, let us know where someone can go to learn more about your work. And then after that, I want to build out more specifically the work that you do and talk about these four lines of effort. But at a high level, could you just talk briefly about, hey, this is my mission. This is kind of my vision for this company. So what comes to mind, and hopefully this expresses my mission, um, but what comes to mind is, is like when people come to see me, like they come because something is going wrong. 
they come because they're stuck because some, you know, some symptom or something is they're experiencing is unpleasant. Right. And so my, my goal is to help people build this aware, the self build self-awareness and decrease those negative symptoms, but then just take it one step further. Like once you have some of that clarity and some of that relief, okay, let's hone in on your, on you and optimal performance and, and what's possible or what maybe you don't even know is possible. And so I'm not sure if that, I'm sure I'll, sure I'll think about this question later and come up maybe with a better way to phrase it. But that's really what comes to mind is, it, you know, for me, I think when I think about therapy and I think when a lot of people think about therapy, it's like about symptom reduction. And for me, it's like, like, no, let's, let's, let's really make sure you have the tools to get through whatever this is, um, but then take it and run with it. Yeah, I love it. It's, it's, I think it's incredibly articulate and, and, and pretty, pretty simple. And, and what I'm hearing from you is the best clients for me are people that have a problem to solve or that for some way are stuck. Mm-hmm. And just raise your hand real quick, stand on one foot, you know, or shout, I don't care, shout out. Like if you're listening right now, if that's ever happened to you. And if you're above the age of 15, you, you can't reject that, <laughs> right? So, so pretty clear on, on, you know, what people are looking to solve for with a partnership with Black Women in Performance. And then, you know, you kind of talked about like your vision. Your vision is not only to get unstuck, not only to solution for how do you move through that problem effectively as a co-collaborator with that person, but then you have this deep desire to deliver on let's go next level together. Okay, we've achieved relief. But stay with me and let's chase optimal performance for your life. How's that sound? I brief you back something yeah. that's working because that's what I yeah. heard from you. Now, I will make the one distinction. The, what I did learn when I first started out, I was like, oh, athletes and military. Those are my clients. Those are who I want to work with. And then I realized, no, that's not always true. It's not all athletes and military. And that's where I kind of came up with that term high performer because I don't want the people who don't want to be here. And I don't mean for that to sound harsh, but that's not my ideal client. I'm looking for the people who they're stuck and they don't like that they're stuck. Right. But they're willing to do the work because it's going to take work. And so that's my ideal client is someone who, you know, whether they believe in therapy or not, you know, that, you know, whatever, because a lot of times people, right. They don't, they don't, need it or believe in it until then they need it. Right. And then it all of a sudden, then they're a little bit more, um, willing, but it, it, it's just, I, all the positions I had before being my own boss, it was all places where the people were forced to be there, you know, whether it was court ordered or mandated by the school or their command was telling them they needed to come see me. Um, or it was drug rehab. So they were, you know, stuck like until I ventured off on my own, I was working with people who didn't want to be there. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm giving up my time and my time with my family for people that don't want to be there and aren't going to do the work. Like, no, I'm sorry. Like that burns me out. That burns me out. And so really, I think what you said eloquently, um, rephrases it. And then to add, but you have to be willing to do the work. 
Absolutely. And, you know, I think as you reflect on some of the directed places you found yourself in, I mean, there are tons of people that are serving those communities and there's a need and it's important and the army could not exist without some, and the the Marines, because that's where you were at Lejeune and, and the military could not exist if they had processes for saying, hey, check it out. You've got a drinking problem. You have to go to the alcohol program to be rehabilitated here, or you run the risk of us kicking you the heck out. Mm-hmm. And that can't be the chain of command because they need a specialist like you in there. But if you're not interested in kicking the habit, and I know that I'm really not using the greatest words here, but it doesn't work. And I look at my career as a leadership and executive coach, and lots of clients will come to me and they'll say, hey, look, I've got this person in my team. His name's John Wayne. And John just doesn't get it. Court, I want you to get him, f- fix him, mm-hmm. help him get it. And when I hear that in my first discovery call with a client, in a very tactful, diplomatic way, I'm going to say, I am not your guy. This is not what I do. Because unless John Wayne wants to change, it ain't going to work. And oh, by the way, that's a managerial problem to solve, not a coaching problem to solve. So I identify deeply with what you're saying here. I get it. Um, And I think the people that are listening to get it too. And I'm happy for you, Catherine, that you've stepped into, you know, being president, CEO, and head MFR in charge. And you can decide who you want to work with and who you don't. Mm -hmm because it's probably the most fulfilling for you. Now let's talk about what it looks like when someone works with you. And I did some research and I, I checked out your website, which is awesome, by the way. Um, and I see that there's four lines of effort th- that I see on there. And, and, and I may incorrectly frame this, so please jump in here and correct me. But as I look at the website, I see that you have a deep focus and an expertise in counseling, brain spotting, which I have no idea what that means. <laughs> safe and sound protocol and heart rate variability training. And I don't know if heart rate variability training is something like heart math, but I am familiar with that. But could you just share with the listeners if I'm accurately depicting kind of your lines of effort in your work, what do they mean? And can you walk through that a little bit for us? And then um, maybe talk a little bit about what someone could experience partnering with you. Yeah, so I'm going to throw a lot of information at you, and I'm hoping I can get it in to where it makes sense, because it's so much information. So now at the end of the day, I do counseling, right? And then brain spotting, heart rate variability training, and safe and sound protocol, those are all tools I use. Um, Now, originally, I had actually set out to do coaching, not counseling, um, but in my in my lack of awareness about, about businesses and how to set them up, I set up a PLLC instead of an LLC. So it's tied to my license. So that's actually mm. why I offer counseling, um, which almost was kind of like a happy accident, I guess you could say. So, <laughs> we love those happy accidents. Yeah. <laughs> it's, really, it's really helped me discover more of, of who I am and how I operate. So now shortly after that happened, I got trained in brain spotting and dude, that was a game changer. So now let me tell you a little bit, let me give you some background information and then I'll go on to explain what those things are and how I operate. Love it, please. 
Go. So, um, so when you think about when you have a negative experience or a trauma, those negative experiences or traumas are stored in your body. They're stored in your brain. Now you may hear me use negative experiences more often or um, use it kind of interchangeably with trauma. And the reason why I do that is because we have, you know, the big T traumas, which are like the obvious ones, like, right, like war, natural disaster, assault, like the ones you're like, okay, yeah, that's trauma. And then you have your little T traumas. Those little T traumas are those day-to-day things that happen that you probably would not even consider a trauma. Um, you know, the death of a dog or a divorce, or you were, you know, if you're younger, you were humiliated at school or you're being bullied. So, you know, those are those little things that, that occur that you don't necessarily identify as a trauma. So I use the term negative experiences because I, I sometimes I think trauma kind of turns people off because they're like, oh, well, that's not me. I haven't experienced that. Yeah, absolutely. So when you have negative experiences, right, your, your brain, your body, they remember and they remember. So that way, if you're in a similar situation, they know how to respond. Right. So I kind of think of things in terms of um, Stephen Porges's polyvagal theory and then um, the concept of like the window of tolerance. And I'll explain what those mean. So um, when I'm thinking of Stephen Porges's polyvagal theory, which is, is how I'm informed. So he talks about like the two branches of the vagus nerve. And I think originally people thought that you had the sympathetic and the parasympathetic response. And that the sympathetic response was your fight or flight and your parasympathetic response was that, you know, calming yourself down. And so what he talks about is that there's two branches of the vagus nerve and the vagus nerve is responsible for that parasympathetic response. And what he's saying is, is you have the ventral vagus branch, which is responsible for that calming down, that relaxing But then you also have the oldest response, which is the dorsal vagal response, the sympathetic, the parasympathetic response that is responsible for the freeze response. Mm. So have you ever heard of fight, flight, freeze? Absolutely. You familiar? Yeah. Yeah. Go through it every day. Oh yeah. Yeah. So (laughs) that, that vagus nerve is not only responsible for, for calming down. um, And I think he calls it um, safe and social. Um, there's another name for it that he calls it that all of a sudden it's not coming to me, but it's that it's that. So when you're in the ventral vagus, you're in that safe and social place. You're socially engaged. That's what he calls it. Social engagement. You're feeling safe and connected. And so when I say safe and connected, I'm not just meaning like safe, like sense of safety, like, um, you know, sense of security, like safe, like you feel safe in your body, but also like, if you have, if you have your friends that you hang out with, you have those friends that you can tell anything to. You can totally be yourself around. You can let your freak flag fly <laughs> and you know they are not going to judge you, right? Sure. But it's a great place have, to be. Oh, yeah. Then you have those people that you're friendly with, but you know you kind of have to watch what you say around them, right? Mm-hmm. So those, those people are not going to help you with that, that safety that the people that are, you know, your freak flag flying friends, those are going to help you get into that place of social engagement. Um, 
So that's the, that's the ventral branch, right? That's that social connection. So now what comes after, so say you're, you know, you're doing your everyday life. Ideally you're operating in, in a place of social engagement and, you know, life happens and you have a stressor and then it sends you into fight or flight. So we say fight or flight, but what happens first is actually flight. It's that feeling that, that wanting to get away, right? Yeah. That movement away. And so that's the response that happens first. Now, if that's not an option um, or if it's looked down upon, you know, it's not acceptable to, to run away, then what happens is the fight response. And so when you think of flight, that's that movement away, that panic, anxiety, worry, concern, right? Mm -hmm. When you think of flight, that's that movement towards. And that's where you see like anger, frustration, you can see rage in there. So fight and flight is that sympathetic activation. Okay. So now say you're going through your day and you're in, in your, you're socially engaged and you're doing good. And then you have like a major stressor, um, or maybe you've had multiple stressors or a chronic stressor. And all of a sudden your system feels overwhelmed. So what's going to happen is it's going to send you into that freeze response. And in that freeze response, you feel, you can feel numb. You can feel depressed. Um, you can feel like you don't have a lot of energy. Sometimes people will feel hopeless or helpless or shut down. Um, we dissociate in this, um, in this stage. And that's kind of, so when I'm thinking of people coming in, like when I'm thinking of anxiety, I'm thinking of like the flight response. You know, when I'm thinking of people coming in to, to deal with anger, I'm thinking of the fight response. Maybe they're stuck in it. And then mm -hmm. when I have people come in that set, that kind of talk to me like they're depressed, they're stuck, I'm looking at that freeze response, right? Mm -hmm. Because these, these things, um, to me, they like freeze looks like depression, right? You, your body's going into a state of conservation. You don't have energy. You aren't moving fast. You know, your body is shutting down to, you know, to conserve. Mm -hmm. um, this is why I'm not a huge fan of diagnosing because these symptoms to me overlap these disorders, right? right? And now we're calling something a disorder, but this is your body's natural response to a threat. And sometimes we just get stuck in it, you know, because of chronic, um, chronic stressors or maybe a major stressor or something. And sometimes we can get stuck there. Sure. So now when I'm thinking of the military, what I was noticing is, is like, you know, ideally we're operating in that place of social engagement or another way to look at it is, is like, we all have a window of tolerance. And when you're inside your window, that's that optimal zone of arousal, right? You don't have too much energy or too little energy. That's that optimal zone, right? And ideally you're cruising in that. And as you have stressors or whatnot, you're able to bounce around within your window. And so what I started noticing with like my military guys, especially those that have deployed a lot, they were going at such a rate that they were in the fight or flight, but fight or flight became like their new normal. So that became like their new place of operation, right? They were, they were kind of in fight or flight all the time on guard, right? And mm. then I would notice when they would come back, then they'd have a hard time like calming down or relaxing or resting, right? And so the way I kind of imagine this in my head is, well, they were going so hard, so fast for so long, you know, their brain, your brain's gonna rewire to be the most efficient. So it's gonna rewire to do what you're doing most of. 
And if you're constantly in fight or flight, like the way I'm looking at it is your brain's rewired for that. And so, yeah, it would be hard to come home and calm down, right? You, it's almost like you've got to relearn how to do that again. But if you're, if you're thinking about it from that like zone of optimal performance, your window of tolerance, as you accumulate negative experiences, and this is physical and mental injuries, as you're accumulating these in your body, your window of tolerance becomes smaller and smaller, right? And so when you have these stressors, there's, there's very little wiggle room to bounce around and be okay, right? And so maybe you've accumulated so many in your body that you know something little happens and all of a sudden you're freaking out and you're angry and you're you know you're fighting with your wife or whatever the thing is and it's like kind of like out of nowhere and maybe it wasn't even a big thing that set you off you know it's like you you've immediately jumped out of that that window of tolerance which has become very small mm-hmm. and that's like you become hyper aroused right or maybe it's anxiety you become very anxious or panicky you know that's that hyper arousal Um, or maybe if your window becomes very small, you know, you hit that point of overwhelm and you, you have the hypo response, the hypo arousal, which is that freeze response. And so I hope that kind of gives you a good idea of what I'm talking about with window of tolerance and the fight flight freeze response, because then what I do, so when people come in, um, I use brain spotting the most. And what brain spotting does is it, it operates on the understanding that you, you know, your traumas, your negative experiences are stored in your body. And it was developed out of EMDR and EMDR is I, I'll never remember the acronym, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, I think is what it stands for, which mm. maybe more people might be familiar, more familiar with um, that they use to, to treat trauma. So this was developed out of that. And so what the guy Uh, Dr. David Grand, what he found was that he was working with an ice skater actually, and she couldn't nail like a triple, like, you know, when they jump up and spin three times, (laughs) whatever that's called, triple loop or whatever. (laughs) She she couldn't nail it. She was working so hard and she couldn't nail it. And he was working with her and he was doing EMDR where you're going back and forth because it's this bilateral, you're going back and forth uh, in her visual field. And he was going really slow because what he found is if he would go too fast, it could be overactivating for people. So he slowed it down. Well, when he slowed it down, he noticed if he got to certain points in her visual field, she had these movements. Like I think it was an eye wobble. And so he decided to just stop and sit with it. And when he did that, this torrent of, of, you know, pat of her past just came out. And she was able to process all of these things that, that had never come up before in therapy. And the very next day she was able to do that triple, that triple thing that I can't think of the name of. (laughs) (laughs) And so um, that's kind of how it was discovered and how it was founded. And so what happens when someone comes in, whatever they want to work on, whatever they're stuck on, whatever, you know, whatever the issue is, we kind of frame it. And then we find where you feel it in the body And then we find the eye position that correlates with it. And then you're able to bypass your thought process, right? Um, Because we can think, we can think things may be true, but you know, that's our perspective. It doesn't mean that that's actually true. Um, And so this bypasses your prefrontal cortex and goes into the unconscious and allows you to process the things that you don't even realize are contributing to the issue. And it's amazing. I've never seen anything like it before. And it was like, 
it was one of those things where that word kept coming up and I'm like, that sounds so weird. Like that sounds so weird. And it just kept coming up, kept coming up. And I was finally like, I better check this out. And I checked it out. I had it done on myself because I was like, I better believe this works before I go get trained in it. And I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. I could not believe it. And the results I've had with people, they're amazing. In fact, I had somebody text me last night and I actually asked if I could share a little bit about him uh, on your podcast today. So when I first started, started out, you know, brain spotting sounds weird. When you explain it, it sounds weird. And, and people are kind of like, uh, yeah, I'm not really sure about that. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's one of those holistic things that, that it sounds different. Um, and so there were two guys that came across my path when I first started out and I was like, well, I want to get, I want to get certified in brain spotting. You know, I was trained in this new thing. Um, both of these guys were, um, being looked at for medical separation. Mm. Um, and so I was like, look, if you come in and let me practice on you, let me like, you know, get used to using this, um, I'll work with you pro bono. And so this one guy came in and when he came in, he had had, so he was a service member. He had, you know, multiple deployments. Um, we're guessing multiple head injuries. The one that brought him in was a motorcycle accident. He had a head injury from a motorcycle accident. He slammed into the back of a truck mm. and I, I, caught up with him like a year or so after that. And he still had his arm in a brace and, and didn't have the use of his arm. And so I kind of was like, look, I don't know what this is going to do or what this could do, but I had a lot of hope and I had a lot of faith. And um, we just kind of kept going through the accident. We kept processing it and processing it and just um, processing different, different things that came up in his life. We focused on his arm, you know, being able to use his arm. And he's actually the one that wrote the testimony for me on the brain spotting page. And I think that the words he used was um, within a month, he was able to um, do a bicep curl. Wow. And he came in and he like, he had only kind of gave me like the report of like, he perceived it as like having 5% use of his hand. Um, and by the end of that month, he had, he had a bicep curl down. Now, don't get me wrong. He was also working with other people. So I, I'm not, I'm not trying to take claim to all of that, but he texted me last night and he, he checks in with me from time to time. He's up at Walter Reed now. Um, and he sent me a video of his movement and I was amazed. He's, he's almost regained the function, like full function of his arm. And all we just kind of focused on was like rebuilding those neural networks, like rebuilding that that mind body connection. The way I perceived it is, is like he had that injury you know, his arm was okay. His nerves checked out. They needed to kind of regenerate, but they checked out. And my thought was he's gone so long without using his arm. I wonder if, you know, his brain kind of took that space over to use it for other things that were, that he was using. And so not using his arm for so long, kind of, you know, it doesn't die, you know, that place in your brain doesn't die. It just gets taken over by other areas. And so the way I kind of was conceptualizing it is let's just work on rebuilding your brain's awareness that your arm is still here and it still works. And that's kind of where we came at. So, so that's brain spotting. Now, the reason why I brought up the polyvagal theory and the vagus nerve is because 
the way I, I look at this, right, if I'm looking at it from this fight, flight, freeze, this window of tolerance perspective, you know, that vagus nerve that has two branches. So what does not help us is to be in, in the sympathetic or the dorsal vagal shutdown, right? The, the fight, flight, freeze. It does not help us. We were only meant to be in that place for a short period of time, right? So we could escape whatever the threat was. We're not meant sure. to live there. And so what we want to do is get us back into that ventral vagal functioning. So I use brain spotting as a way to calm the system down. The safe and sound protocol, that is a listening system. It was developed by Stephen Porges, which is the guy who came up with the polyvagal theory. So with the vagus nerve, I mean, the vagus nerve, it's our 10th cranial nerve. It's just this amazing nerve. Um, and it's connected, it starts at the brainstem. It's connected to the heart, the lungs, the gut. Um, it stimulates muscles in your pharynx, larynx, esophagus, stomach, small intestine, large intestine, liver, spleen, gallbladder, kidneys. I mean, it's huge. It plays a role in heart rate, breathing, digestion, sweating, helps regulate blood pressure, stimulate saliva, like all these things, right? Um, so if you think about it, right, when you get anxious or you get in fight or flight, your heart rate speeds up, right? That's that vagus nerve. That's that automatic functioning. Absolutely. Um, and so what, because the vagus nerve is also connected to the ears, um, what he's saying with this listening system is, is that, our middle ear muscle, it becomes the, the focus of it becomes um, switched from sounds of safety to sounds of threat. So then our focus starts to go towards background noise, right? Um, either like low pitches or high pitches, things that signal threat to us. So our ear muscles can become recalibrated to focus on those things if we're in that fight, flight or freeze for too long. And so what the listening system does is, is it uses frequency in music to, to re kind of regulate the nervous system through the vagus nerve through exercising that middle ear muscle using frequency and sound. So it's just another way to re-regulate your nervous system. Cause that's what I'm, that's what I'm thinking of here. Like when I see people, I don't think, oh, you have PTSD, you're, you have a depressive disorder and anxiety disorder. The way I'm looking at them is like, oh my gosh, you've been living this way for so long. You've re-regulated, you've re-regulated your nervous system. So it's not functioning optimally. Let's get this re-regulated, right? It's, it's dysregulated. Let's get it re-regulated. And so that's just another tool to help re-regulate the nervous system. Now the heart rate variability training, this is it's heart math is the one I actually have. So I haven't really been able to play with it much. Um, before the pandemic hit, it was one I was going to add and that kind of pushed things back. And so I finally got it, but I haven't really had the chance to sit and play with it. But that's an, it's another tool to help strengthen the vagal tone. Because if your vagal tone is low, um, then that's when you see dysfunction. If you increase your vagal tone, that's when you're seeing um, more of the optimal functioning. So the heart rate variability is just another tool to access that. Wow. Some incredible skills, protocols, um, modalities. If either of those three words are working, that's what I'm hearing in the way you approach helping people that have problems to solve from an arm that's fully functional, but not working 
to probably a number of different other examples that you could share with folks, but people that are stuck, people that mm-hmm. don't want to be stuck, but they're not sure how to move through it. Well, check out Catherine and brain spotting or safe and sound protocol or heart rate variability, i.e. heart math, because she has you know evidence in her practice that these things can be helpful. So where can someone go learn more about this, Catherine? From you, like, is it just your website or what would you recommend? Yeah, that's the best place because I link, um, I link the brain spotting page uh, on my brain spotting page. So you can go look up more information and research about brain spotting. Um, there's two videos on that page. And one is with Mackie Sasser, who's a catcher for the New York Mets. Um, and, and it talks about because, you know, as we accumulate these negative experiences in our system, they can they can lead to that dysfunction, right? And so how they're showing up in sports is sometimes they're showing up with choking. And so really? when when someone chokes in sport, like I think people tend to think like, oh, you just need to get out of your head. Oh, you need you just need to do this. You just need to, you know, you just need to, right? And what they don't always recognize is sometimes it's like a buildup of negative experiences that's kind of leading to that moment of choking. And sometimes the experiences don't have anything to do with the sport. Sometimes they do. Sometimes it's both, right? Mm. Um, and so that video kind of goes and talks. He talks about his journey of like, I think he, there was um, a play at home plate and he got railroaded. Mm-hmm. And after that, he developed the inability to throw back to the pitcher. If he had time, if he had time to think, he could not throw it back, right? He couldn't throw it to second base. If he didn't, he could do it. And it got so bad that like, I think he, he developed this like hitch and he would kind of like pump it three times and then throw. And so, I mean, even the crowd would count like the times he'd pump it before he could throw it back. And it got <laughs> so bad, right? And I think he, he talks about like he, he ended up, you know, stopped playing. And I think he suffered with it for a long time and tried all these modalities. And in the video, it's, a, it's a ESPN 30 for 30 you see um, Dr. David Grant working with him and the traumas that come out, like have some of them have nothing to do with it, right? Some of them, I think he had seen his little brother get hit by a bus. I mean, these are the things that came out when he started processing these things that, you know, you don't think have anything to do with it, but you accumulate these things in your system over time and they change your ability to react. It's fascinating. It's fascinating to me because like I look at my own life and I look at one of my most you know, critical moments, which was husband, uh, I'm, I'm now divorced, but I know that with my, my ex-wife, there was absolutely some trauma as part of her life. I mean, let's be honest, there's trauma part of my life too. Um, but it, just in you sharing out the reframing of, you know, the fact that someone can't throw a baseball, something he's probably done thousands of times could be due to something unrelated, trauma-based, it opens up so many new possibilities for me on how someone can find healing and then be restored to performance. That they're probably not even thinking, that I'm not even thinking because I got to be honest, I'm a little linear in that moment. And I think most, I mean, I even was. Like, I remember... 
like I really grew up with like that suck it up buttercup mentality. Like I pushed through it. Like, I, I mean, I went to these brain spotting trainings and my world was flipped upside down. Cause you know, we're learning all these techniques and then we're practicing with each other. So I had it done on me multiple times. Um, I think this, the second and the third training I went to, I part like I volunteered to be the demo. So my, I basically had a therapy session in front of a live audience sure. and I didn't care. Cause I was like, I'm going to get the most out of this. Like if I have stuff that I need to work on, like, let's do it. Like, I don't want to carry this stuff around with me anymore. And I remember at one point, like at the second training, and this is, I think this is a lot of the reason why I'll say negative experiences is because at one point in the second training, um, you know, one of my colleagues was like talking to me about dissociation and, and different things. And like, and I was like, I haven't been through trauma, like, you know, and she was like, Catherine, <laughs> I remember she's like, Catherine, you saw your dad have a heart attack right in front of you. Like you've been through trauma. Those things are, are traumatic. You, your body remembers those. And I was like, Oh, like I, it really like, because I didn't, you know, fall in this category of, of war or natural disaster. Like I was like, I just didn't think I had experienced trauma and it, it just gave me this new sense of self-awareness. And once, once you have that, and that's why I really wanted to go over fight, flight, freeze and uh, window of tolerance right now for your listeners is because when you start looking at it like that, and then you start noticing yourself, get in fight, flight or freeze or out, you know, then it's like, Oh, okay. And, and it, I think it can empower people, but also destigmatize, right? Because it's, it's not this, there's something wrong with you. It's okay. Look, you're, you've been operating at this pace for so long, your body kind of, you know, it, it's, it's become a little dysregulated and that's normal. It's normal based on what you're going through, what you've been through. So let's get it regular again. You know, it takes away, I think some of the shame. Yeah. Um, so it's a wonderful way to frame it. You know, it's, it's almost like, you know, if you hurt your back doing back squats in the gym, you're not judged. Yeah. Right. But you're, mm -hmm. but you can't perform, you know, but when, when you can't capture it as, as a tangible thing like that, like, yeah, man, you're, you're, you pulled your hamstring. Okay. Got it. Now I can't run as fast as opposed to something going on in the mental space. I think that's where it's much more challenging and harder for people to step into that there's something here that needs to be fixed. So this is your invitation, right? If, if you know, go to blackwellmentalperformance.com, check out Catherine's website, check out a lot of the resources that she cited. And hey, if you're stuck, if you have a problem you want to solve and you can't seem to do it on your own and you want to, Again, you want to do it well and return to optimal performance. Catherine's your lady to check out. And if she can't do it, I guarantee you that she's got a network of folks that she'd plug you into because she cares about you. Definitely. And I just want to share here a quote that I'm looking at right now as I look at our website. It says, you can't stop the waves, but you can learn to surf. What a great metaphor for trauma or negative experiences. Cause I think what, what I'm reading in that is, Hey, it's going to happen to all of us, mm -hmm. but you can find a way to work with it. I mean, I'm a, I'm a divorced guy and I would argue that everything that I've seen eight deployments overseas, uh, you know, a life of, of special forces in the army. And that's 
without a doubt, my most signature traumatic experience in my life to date was going through that. And, you know, um, the way I framed it in my mind is that, you know, I don't, I don't know that I'll ever get over that. And I think it's an unrealistic expectation for me to think that I will, but what I will learn to do is live with. And so, you know, in, in my own meaning making, you know, I think there may be some relevance to kind of what you've shared so far uh, is you've got to get to some acceptance that it's okay. And then you got to find a way and want to be a willing participant to drive through. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, you got a little more time to spend with us or do we need to I get do. you back to your day? Okay, cool. Because I don't want to miss the opportunity here uh, to talk about high performance um, and to hear a perspective from someone else like you who's dedicated their life work to helping people return to an optimal performance place in their life. Um, and so this is High Performance Pathways, right? I absolutely have a lens and a definition for high performance that I use in my own work. But people come in on this show to get a perspective from someone else. So, you know, would you consider sharing with us today? And when you say the word high performance, or I say it, and please, we can substitute optimal performance in there because it's one that you continue to return to. So optimal performance do you have a definition for what that looks like that you could share with us? Yeah, so I, I think what comes to mind for me for high performance or optimal performance is like not a formal definition, but like growth and continuously moving forward and adapting and evolving and just constantly working towards that better version of yourself. Um, I try to get away from using peak performance. I think it's on my website and I've got to cut that out because that implies that there's like a a top, right? A ceiling, like, and I like, I like optimal performance and I, I've been using um, performance expansion more lately as well, because it's like, okay, let's, let's start to focus on what's possible, like possibility. Like let's, let's lean into that and see what can happen because sometimes you don't, sometimes you don't have the awareness of how far your performance can go until you start you know, to visualize that and, and get a clear picture of that and, and constantly reach for a new picture and a, and a bigger picture, you know, moving forward. Now, out of curiosity, I kind of Googled it. Um, and I think Merriam-Webster came up with their definition of high performance or high performer as better, faster, and more efficient than others. Mm. And I thought about this and I'm like, I don't like that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like that because to me, that's, that's opening up the potential for comparison. Like you're better, faster, and more efficient than others. And I think it was Teddy Roosevelt that said that comparison is the thief of joy, right? And so when I think of high performance, you know, in certain situations, there is going to be that component of being better than others, but it's, that's not the focus. I don't think that should be the focus. The focus should be on consistently taking yourself to that next level. I love it. What I'm hearing from Catherine Blackwell in this moment uh, is a perspective on high performance, a perspective on optimal performance. And, and what I'm hearing is it's defined by you as that best version of self. Mm-hmm devoid of comparison as you reject Merriam-Webster's definition here 
And the other thing that I'm hearing is, you know, optimal performance to you is defined by being open to what's possible. Yeah. And then I also heard you say very clearly up front that, and these are my words, that there's some habits and actually the word habit is my word. Some of the habits in your experience that allow people to achieve high performance and optimal performance is a habit of having a growth mindset. Shout out mm -hmm. to Duckworth. The habit of always wanting or desiring to move forward and the habit of adaptation. Mm -hmm. So that's what I heard. Does yes. that sound about right? Yes, definitely. And um, not only Duckworth, but Carol Dweck with her book, Mindset. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's right here on my bookshelf. Carol <laughs> S. Dweck, PhD, Mindset. So I think I got that wrong, to be honest. I said growth mindset and that is Carol. That's yeah. not Angela. So thanks, girlfriend, for keeping this guy here straight. Um, all right. I think two more questions for you, if mm -hmm. I may. And so I want to return to habits. You talked about a couple of them, but you know, as a person that, that helps others through ther as a therapist, you talked about the ways in which you serve folks. You gave a testimonial of someone you worked with that had an injury from a motorcycle accident. People tune into this show, I think for this session, in addition to everything else, and that is what can you give me by way of a practical takeaway? Like, so Catherine, I'm curious, are there any habits that you have in your own life that help you chase optimal performance? And if so, do you mind sharing a couple with us today? Yeah. Um, so what I've noticed is, is all of the habits that come to mind are all based around developing that a greater self-awareness. And what I wanted to kind of throw out to people is do not underestimate the simple things. Um, I tell my clients, like, if there's only one thing I help you with, if like, I hope it's self-awareness, like deepening your level of self-awareness, because the more self-awareness you gain, you know, that's information, right? That's information you can take in and grow. Um, so the habits that I kind of thought about were, you know, I practice what I preach. I have my own brain spotting sessions that I do. I have my own brain spotting therapist. She actually specializes with, um, you know, athletes. Uh, I found someone that fits me and, and my goals. Um, and I do sessions every other week, not just to deal with my stuff, but I'm also taking in, you know, secondhand other people's stuff. And so, you know, that can accumulate also over time. So I definitely do my own brain spotting. You can, there's something that's called self-spotting. So, you know, if you've done brain spotting, you can actually learn how to do it on yourself. Um, so I will self-spot. I use the listening system. I use the tools I have. Um, I don't just recommend them for others. I test them out on myself before I use them on others. Um, the other uh, habit I have and I think this is an important one, is I allow others to help me. Um, there is healing in community. Uh, we are biologically wired to connect, right? Other, other people can help us get into that ventral vagal state of social, like safety and connection, that social engagement. But they can bring to it a perspective that maybe you don't have, right? Because it's you and you're in it. And so sometimes you can't see, but if you allow other people to help you, you know, 
that can give you insight from a perspective you might not have if you, if you didn't. Um, not only that, but so many people like want to do it alone, get through it alone. Um, and it can, it can make you feel really lonely and isolated. Um, so really allowing others to help you, whatever that means too, that doesn't always mean a therapist, you know, maybe that means a coach, maybe that means a friend, maybe that means, you know, to be honest, I just had a massage last week with a, a, a guy who does body work and movement. I have a bad shoulder and he helped me develop yeah. some insight. And he was like, it was amazing. It was this, it was this moment of like, oh my gosh, like <laughs> this changes things. And it was my, I have such a bad shoulder. It's been holding me back physically. Yeah. And he was, he was noticing. And at the end of it, he goes, um, I'm noticing something around anger. And I thought about it and, you know, I, I like to think I have good self-awareness. I do a lot of work and I was, it, it was this realization of, oh my God, I don't allow myself to be angry. Like if something happened, like I'll get angry at my kids, like I'll get angry at my kids, but like if something, you know, happens, like I don't really allow myself to get angry. Like, um, I'm trying to think of a good example. Like I, I'll go to, if, if something happens and I get angry, I'll go to like either feeling depressed about it or anxious about it. It's like for whatever reason, and, and we explored this some more, but I don't allow myself to be angry. And so that was a massage therapist that helped me realize that. It's like, you know, that's great because now it's like, okay, now I can take my stuff to a deeper level and improve myself. My body's holding on to this. You know, what I've learned about myself over the years um, is that um, I would ignore my emotions, ironic, right? Cause I'm a therapist. I would ignore <laughs> my emotions and I, I could push through it. I could push through the emotions. I could push through the pain and my pain tolerance was so huge. And it was actually another massage therapist who was like, I was like, okay, you could like, you can apply pressure. You can apply as much pressure as you want. Like you can really go for it. I, I like my massages to kind of hurt. And she, I was like, I have a really high pain tolerance. And she was like, all that tells me is you've stopped listening to your body. And when she said that, I was like, like mind blown. I was like, crap, I never thought about it that way. And it was this, you know, it, it took me to the next level and it's just constantly. So do not, you know, do not think that building this self-awareness and allowing others to help you just means a therapist. You know, that could be court. That could be myself. That could be a massage therapist. That could be, you know, I don't know if I'm, I'm all up in the holistic world, you know, a, a Reiki person or, or I don't know, they have all these different, different things that you can do um, to develop your awareness, but, but allowing someone else to help you, it, it can deepen your journey. Um, another habit is I constantly revisit my core values um, to make sure that I'm feeding them. Cause if you're not feeding your core values, then it, you start to feel like, what's the point, right? So um, my current core values is family, growth, wellness, and uh, the same massage therapist, he said freedom. And I was like, ooh, I like that because for me, freedom is like time and space in my schedule, like time, flexibility, be able to do, you know, the things I need to do. Um, wellness for me is, is not just mental wellness, but physical wellness too, like my health. All these things are so important to me you know, that growth, continuously moving forward and learning and, and family. Like if I can't be with my family, then my time has to matter. It has to count. 
And if I'm living a life that does not feed these values, then I can burn out. I can become unhappy. So I constantly revisit my core values. If you have not figured out what your core values are, that is something that I think is, is definitely important to do. The last thing I wanted to throw in is the importance of balance. And interestingly enough, I think all of my habits I've learned out of, um, of learning it the hard way, right? <laughs> Not doing them and then learning the hard way. Um, so balance is another one, right? Like I think this mental toughness um, concept is so glorified right now that I'm hearing people that are like, oh, well, I haven't been through anything. So they're invalidating themselves but also this mental toughness of like, just push through it, just keep pushing through it. And it's not sustainable. Like you need some balance, like mental toughness is a fantastic concept, but you have to have balance. You have to have time for recovery. If you do not, you will burn out. It is not sustainable to just continuously push through that. And so, um, so finding ways to implement balance, you know, taking time to recover recover mentally, recover physically, give your body what it needs. So those are my habits. They're wonderful habits. Some that I haven't heard before, some that sound so close and hit home um, to what I believe as foundational habits for optimal performance, for high performance. So let me just briefly back what I'm hearing. Uh, you said balance and being aware of and finding balance in your life as being key for you um, to be at a high level. And that looks different for everybody, right? Mm -hmm. um, the second thing that I heard from you was that your core values are critical components and you actually revisit them, a word you used, uh, so that you, you don't lose an awareness of those things. And, and I just want to offer up for the listener right now, and it really two things. I'm going to offer up a definition because I think sometimes there's confusion around well, what is a core value because um, I do work with core values all the time because I agree with you that they're foundational to decision-making. Um, and so here's my definition for a core value. What are the three to five characteristics of yourself that you consider to be mostly non-negotiable and significantly impact your decision-making and fulfillment and life. And whatever resonates when you hear me speak those words, I would say that's a core value. They're different than like end states, like money is not a core value. I would agree that autonomy or freedom is, Mm -hmm. and money is a means to achieve that, right? So again, that's kind of my take on core values. I geeked out a little bit there and thank you for the opportunity <laughs> to do so. But this is really, really important folks. And what I, what I like to say in, in, in my own words uh, of reflecting your words here, Catherine, is value aligned decision-making and actions. Yes. Um, so wonderful reflection and a habit there that you practice. The third one is allowing people to help. And then the first one was, hey, I'm a practitioner of what I have developed deep expertise in for myself. Specifically, you have a brain spotting coach and you coach brain spotting for others. You do self spotting and you practice your safe and sound protocol. So mm -hmm. 
Thank you so much for sharing those. I know they're informative for folks that are listening. You know, you opened the door a little bit for, for mental health and I, I'm kind of gonna take us in just a really final direction here for a moment because I think that for me in my own life, mental, the word mental health has been very confused in my mind because I don't think enough people share a definition for mental health when they say the words mental health. And so just in this moment, I wanna share with you the listener how I've come to some reflection and my own definition of what mental health means. Because in a way it's almost like the word leadership or the word strategy. They become so common in our, in our word use today. But when I hear someone say leadership or strategy and now mental health, I wanna take the opportunity to get a definition on that. So here's mine folks. Mental health is defined for me as the ability and or willingness to create and maintain a positive self-image in the face of success, challenge, and setback. That, that's, how, that's how I see mental health. And, I, and I, I'm, I'm like, I'm a geek from forcing people to define the words that they use. If I had more time with Catherine, I would ask her to define family growth, wellness, and freedom, right? Because you can name your core values, but the next step in my opinion is you define those core values and that's where you have great clarity. And so there you go. Mental health according to Court Whitman, my ability or willingness to create and maintain a positive self-image in the face of success challenge and setback. And I go on to build this thing out that I think that there's controllable lines of effort that support mental health. And those things are like physical fitness, mental fitness, emotional fitness, spiritual fitness, financial fitness. And there's uncontrollable lines of effort that I call psychological fitness. And so anyway, if you want to geek out on, on me with that some other time, hit me up. Now is not the time to do it. But I was just moved to share that because you talked a little bit about mental health in the time that we chatted. So I wanted to share a definition. And oh, by the way, folks, I have no training in mental health. I'm not a mental health practitioner, no certifications. I just have people that chat with me about this because of the water I swim in with the work that I do. So Catherine, last question I have for you is what's next for you? You know, and you can take that answer wherever you want. I think you're up against a move. So I know that's something that's next because you're that military spouse that may have changed. I don't know. You can take it professionally, but what's next? Share with us and then we'll close things out together. So we're coming up on a move to Japan real quick. <laughs> um, I don't know exactly what that's going to look like. I will probably close down my counseling practice in North Carolina. Um, I will keep Blackwell mental performance up and going. I just don't know how it's going to morph probably into coaching. I really get my energy from in-person. So again, I'm still trying to figure that piece out. Um, I, I may have a, an interview to be a SOCOM MFLAC. Um, I'm, I'm just kind of seeing what, what is there. I'm, I'm trying to really envision the possibility and the potential. Um, in a perfect world, I would be getting my PhD in psychophysiology. That's an area that really interests me, that mind-body connection. Um, I don't know if that's gonna happen, but I may go for my CMPC, the Certified Mental Performance Consultant Certificate. That uh, graduate program allowed me to be able to do that. 
what I'm noticing is, is I have a huge interest in um, how stress, how stress and traumas in the body, how that impacts our hormones, you know, throw in TBI, because most of my clients have had head injuries, you know, whether they're athletes or military or both, there's a history of, of TBI or, or a head injury. Um, and I'm really interested in inflammation. And so I, I would love to explore that more. Um, I'm noticing with my head injuries or my military guys, I'm noticing a lot of sleep apnea. I'm noticing a lot of low testosterone. I'm noticing a lot of these things and I'd like to see how they're all, all connected and all related. So either I can find ways to help treat them in addition, or I can make appropriate referrals for the, the best way for them to proceed. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what's coming. I love it. And you're sharing, there's some reality of this is just where my life is at right now with Zach getting orders to go to Japan. And then there's what I hear in you is just you're chasing optimal performance. Once again, as you stay aligned to your values of growth and wellness, because that's what I heard from you and kind of the conviction you have to continue to learn and yes. then serve others in your work. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for the insights, the teaching, the reflection, the vulnerability. Um, I wanna close out with uh, the way we ask everyone and invite everyone to do, which is with our high performance breakdown. And it goes like this, Catherine, I'm gonna say breakdown on three, and then I'm gonna count one, two, three. And when you hear the word three, and I know Zach's listening like a good Marine who understands commands of preparatory and then command of execution. That number three is for you to execute for us. Three claps and then speak the words boom shakalaka. Any questions? Nope. All right. Getting it. Hey, Catherine Blackwell here on your episode of High Performance Pathways with tremendous insight into her work, what has inspired her to serve and what she's going to continue to do with her life as she honors her core values and what could be possible in her life next. Thanks for being here, Catherine. Break us down on three. One, two, three. Boom, shakalaka. I love it. Catherine, <laughs> thanks so much for being here. Hey, for folks listening, to connect with Catherine, go to the website. I listed it earlier. I'll say it again, blackwellmotorperformance.com. You absolutely need to go there as she moves out towards Japan because that might be one of the only ways to get a hold of her. She's on Facebook at Blackwell Mental Performance and she's up on Insta at Blackwell Mental Performance. Or, hey, just hit her on LinkedIn, Catherine, K-A-T-H-E-R-I-N-E, -E, Blackwell, B-L-A-C-K-W-E-L-L. -L. Now get out there, folks. Consider what Catherine shared with us together today. Allow it to inspire you and to encourage you in your life to chase high performance. See you next week. Bye, y'all.